today we are doing part two of the legends of business development. Before we get started, I'd like to give a quick introduction to 51 Labs. We are a marketing firm that is focused on the M&A and VC communities. Our primary services are LinkedIn content, so you should be getting five and 10,000 views per week per partner on LinkedIn. We do video, including firm videos, portfolio company videos, Zoom interviews, and other types of creative videos like CEO uh, interviews with your portfolio. Uh, we also do events such as this, as well as virtual AGMs and other services kind of within the digital marketing category. Uh, our clients are primarily in the private equity and M&A space, broadly speaking, although we have done some work in the VC community. I also want to talk about investorsandoperators.com. This is the media side of our business where we have 40 plus interviews with uh, the partners of firms and others in this market to really focus on the human interest stories. Next, we have done a bunch of events, including Business Development 3.0, which was on December 8th, and that recording and podcast is available on our website, uh, investorsandoperators.com. I'd also like to talk about 51 Vets, which is content and community for transitioning veterans. For the past four years, I've spent thousands of literally 2000 hours over the past four years working with transitioning veterans. And, you know, my request of this community is to give either your checkbook or your calendar to help transitioning vets get jobs. It's really simple. Shoot me an email that just says veterans and your name. And maybe you can do an info interview, a lunch and learn at your firm, a fireside chat where you are the guest and we're just talking about your story or just simply being a connector. I want to thank our sponsor for this event, SourceScrub. Josh, can you give a background on what you do at SourceScrub? What is SourceScrub and why do people need to use SourceScrub in the M&A community? Absolutely. Thank you, Jordan, and very excited to be on board today. So I'm the VP of customer success at SourceScrub, uh, which is the the world's leading platform for helping M&A professionals, investment professionals find research and connect with private companies. And I think there's really three main reasons why folks here should care today about a, a solution like SourceScrub. <clears throat> Firstly, you need to see companies earlier in order to stay competitive and differentiate in the space today. <clears throat> and, and for those specific companies, those that are bootstrapped, profitable, growing consistently, these typical type of nuggets you're trying to garner, those are the ones that are the toughest to find. And we're helping surfacing those nuggets, so to speak. Thirdly, the data on those companies, the data in the private company economy is, is sparse when compared to the public company economy. And so we're helping to validate, sift through that, aggregate it and present it to you and visualize it to you in a way that allows you to cut through the noise and get smart on these businesses quickly. How do you do this <laughs> from a high level and getting so much detailed information about private companies? Like, I mean, this is a huge value prop for people who are trying to find proprietary deals. A hundred percent. It's it's a combination of a little bit of AI and, and machine learning behind the scenes, but mainly paired with a, a team of, of human capital. So we got a team of about 450 researchers out in the Philippines that have been trained to spec 
according to research processes that, that our founder, Tyler Fair, started back at his prior firm, Saren Capital, that allow the, the same experience as anyone at any of these investment firms um, and, and investment banking firms might have done to aggregate details from a multitude of different websites, right? You got like the 15 windows open on your screen. Yeah. We're condensing that through our research process into one visualized and intuitive um, profile on a company, but also a search experience built around that so that you can find specifically bootstrap companies, those that are growing quickly, and those that are within a certain size range or wheelhouse that you might invest in. Awesome. Thank you so much for being a sponsor on this. It means a lot. It means we can do these events, <laughs> keep the bills paid. Um, thank you so much. And let's go over to our uh, introduction to the panelists now. So our first panelist is Bob Landis, who is a founding partner of the origination team at the Riverside Company. Next, we have Gretchen Perkins, who is a partner and head of origination for Avance Investment Management. Then Glenn Oaken, Managing Director of Mangrove Equity Partners. Jay Jester, partner at Plexus Capital. And Mark Jones, partner at Riverside Associates. To kind of kick us off, uh, Josh, would you mind doing the first question? Absolutely. And I think I wanted to spark back to that data point we just touched on, Jordan. And, um, the data point of 65% of private equity firms and investment banks and those on the m landscape are still not using any sort of sophisticated technology to empower BD sourcing and everything in between. Yet there's a hundred billion dollars in returns being left on the table. I want to put the mic over to each and every one of the panelists here and just pose the question, how are you utilizing technology in your own firms? Uh, how are you utilizing your tech stacks as, as we think of them in BD and sourcing and how has it helped? Great, Gretchen, do you wanna kick off? Josh, sure. thanks so much for being with us today. And Josh, that statistic is shocking to me as someone who is very reliant on my CRM. Um, I don't understand how folks function without one, without a strong one. And so our tech stack, if you will, is rooted in our CRM. Uh, current CRM that we're using at Avance is Deal Cloud. Um, we used Salesforce at my prior private equity firm and at the one before that it was, you know, back in the day and it was a homegrown system that was clunky and slow, but it was still a CRM. So I've always, I've always had a strong CRM to yep. use and it's just critical for our job, which is keeping up in regular cadence with people who have deals or can refer us to people who have deals. I saw, um, I saw in the media this week a comment, and I wish I could remember where I read it because I, I would give attribution, but I didn't come up with this, but I think it was really true for today, which is pre-COVID tech was an enabler for all of our jobs. And in COVID, post-COVID tech is, has become our heartbeat. And that really resonated with me. You know, anyone who wasn't a power user of your CRM before has had to figure it out. Um, and um, for those of us who were power users in our existing system or learning a new system, you know, it, it's, um, it's a matter of now being able to really dig into some things and um, reach out to people that you need to reach, you need to reach. So you can also augment your CRM technology with outside services, LinkedIn, of course, 
has become so much more important in outreach. I think for the audience, if you look at the LinkedIn pages of some of Jordan's clients like uh, Hammond Kennedy, Ted Kramer's there, or Kinsey Capital where Suzanne Yoon is, you'll see their LinkedIn presence is top notch. And um, really I think benchmarking for the rest of us to get, to get our game up. Um, you can also augment with Sutton Place strategies, which allows you to see the deals done in the market and you can target more closely um, uh, the active banks in the subsectors that, for instance, Avance is interested in. Um, Source Scrub, obviously, another, another way to get to that. So there's really two pillars for, for me, and that is finding the people that I need to to, that I need to be in touch with, who can provide me with actionable deal flow or referrals to great executives. And then keeping, in track, keeping track of them, keeping organized and documenting our interactions over time, because I can't remember everything, <laughs> but yeah. my CRM can. So those, were, those, are, those are kind of my two pillars, finding the people, keeping track of them and helping them stay organized. Guys, let's go around the, uh, the table quickly and just say what CRM that you and the firm uses, um, if, if you don't mind. Uh, starting off with Jay. Um, you know, it's a Salesforce engine. Um, we use Tableau on the data visualization side. Uh, and then we use a whole bunch of Asana boards uh, for workflow. How has that been with Asana versus Trello versus Monday um, in terms of managing projects? Uh, we've had great luck with Asana. I, I'm, I, I know the other products a little bit, um, yep. uh, and I'm a little bit old school. On, uh, I think it's less about the tool and how the tool's deployed. Um, but you know, that's an, that's another topic there. My, my overall philosophy is I'm a big believer in Dunbar's number, which is kind of the maximum number of relationships that a human can effectively have. And I think the sole purpose of good CRM is to help you figure out who's in that hundred to 150. Yeah. And that means, uh, you know, the people at the top, we all know the people at the bottom, we need help to figure out how to not waste time there and then how to remember to engage with the people in the middle and, and spreading that across the firm is the, is the point of the CRM, not finding 10,000 more deal sources. It's being really effective with a couple hundred levered across the organization. Great. Well, guys, let's keep on going around the table. Actually, uh, Jay, do you guys use Slack internally for comms or how do you usually email? How, how do you usually use it? Uh, uh, we do not use Slack. Um, and it is, uh, I'd say a combination of, uh, of email, text, and a lot of Zoom is the internal communications. And actually Microsoft Teams also. Okay, cool. Let's keep on going. Mark? Uh, we're the same with the uh, internal communications. We utilize Dynamo uh, on the CRM. And I think I won't repeat a lot of what Gretchen said. She covered it very well. But I think what, to me, what it allows me to do is, is it's a combination. It's a complement to the in-person meetings. And so it allows me to be more prepared for the in-person meetings, talk about the deals we've recently seen, figure out what happened to the deals that we passed on or we bid on and we didn't get. And um, you know, you, you, it allows you to be sharp in a meeting. And I think we talked about this a little bit on the, the first webinar, but uh, it lets you be memorable in a meeting and differentiate yourself from the other three or four private equity groups that have uh, wandered through the office that day. <laughs> Bob? 
we're on our fifth system right now. Um, I can't recall what we had when I first joined 19 years ago, but then we used Access, then we used ACT. I was the pilot and recommended uh, Deal Dynamo. Uh, and about three years ago, uh, we dropped Deal Dynamo, and now we're 100% Deal Cloud. The first ones were driven by more our IR people. They needed this, they needed that. And the last one, Deal Cloud, has been driven by origination. We, we track every deal we've ever seen, all the notes, anything that we're allowed legally to keep in our system, whether it's a SIM, all of that information is in there. Um, in ACT and every other one, they have a space just for a personal information. And, and to go to the point, I think Mark said, or, or Gretchen, I can't remember everything. But when I talk to somebody and they talk about their daughter, they talk about their son, uh, their wife, their kids, I, I just type that and put it in there. So when I'm calling them, it pops up again and you have a meaningful conversation and they never ever forget. And I think I think uh, somebody mentioned about Nadim over at uh, Sutton Place. You know, he's he is probably the most he was a break front for so many smaller BD firms. We didn't use them as much because we had so many people on the ground and it was a duplication. But for people that only have one or two BD, I think he's essential. And he's been very helpful to us, even though you know, we haven't engaged him as a client, we use him as an advisor all the time. And, and to go to one example, having spent 20 years in the military, if you don't have a CRM system, I mean, you're dead in the water. Uh, it's a force multiplier, as they say in, in the army. And we used to say, you don't go to a gunfight with a knife. I mean, you need that CRN system. So you're constantly in track, you know what deals. I mean, I just pulled out my CRN system and learned to date how many deals we bought this year. I couldn't do that before I had to track it manually. I just push a button and anybody in my firm, all 300 of us, I know how many deals we've done to date. Sometimes that's important to somebody who says, well, are you active? And sometimes people don't, they don't care. But the CRN system, it's your lifeblood. Yeah, I think that on the CRM note, we're going to have a, another webinar as a follow up in January about this getting into like the level, the next level of granularity, like, okay, how do you structure contact company data, what's valuable, what's not valuable, for example, Bob, like, you know, okay, you have kids, yes or no, well, how many kids, what are their names, what are their ages, like, and Everything. all these little things that in the grand scheme of things, it's the difference between someone who's able to form incredible relationships over decades, and not. Um, so Let's go on to the next, uh, actually, before we go on to the next one, Glenn, what, what, do, what do you guys use at Mangrove? We use a customized Salesforce, and we work hard to make sure that our portfolio companies are making data-driven decisions. So we would expect nothing less than that for ourselves. And so the whole idea of an intelligent architecture to the CRM, um, good population of the CRM constantly, uh, right. just so that we can know what activities and what behaviors are actually yielding results. So... Let's talk about uh, actually CRM and support. So um, within Salesforce and when you're sending out emails, you know, do the partners do their own updates or how do you have your team, how do you have that support team to keep the data updated? It's a really good question because uh, all of us are drinking from a fire hose and there's a finite amount of time. And the whole idea of the CRM is to lend efficiency. Um, so you have to have the right structure from a human standpoint as well. And we're fortunate to have a terrific team of people. So the BD professionals, they, they populate a lot of it themselves. Um, depending on the individual, depending on what's going on at the particular time, we have a very, very good team of, of colleagues that are uh, more administrative in their yep. focus and uh, they make it hum. They're invaluable. Well, guys, let's move over to the next question. So that's the tech focus. Now we're going to move over to some general stuff about building BD teams, uh, compensation, et cetera. So uh, you mind if I take the wheel? Yeah, sure. Sure. Thank you. So just quick, uh, I think this one is fascinating to me because it's just, it's a, it's a point of 
of um, passion is how do you build a BD group, right? It's one thing to hire a great BD person. It's another thing to build out a BD team. And that, that um, dynamic is a little bit conflicted. The idea of being a great BD person who's the sort of, um, you know, out in the market, but being an administrator as well, those are a little bit in conflict. So I'd just be curious um, for you guys, how you've thought about building out, what, uh, what does the right BD person to start look like? And then how do you build on that? And we'll start with Glenn since we will go reverse order. Okay. Um, well, it all begins with the right people. Some of the characteristics that I think are absolutely essential are people who genuinely care about other people. I don't think you can fake that. People who want to do favors for people, they want to be responsive. So finding those individuals, um, because the, the question you're given really um, asks, how, how do you find these people? Um, we found that it has to be someone that you have personal contact with rather than reading a resume. Um, we've had uh, people join our team that were close friends uh, and contacts of somebody already on our team. Uh, I've been at conferences where I encountered an individual and I said, we've got to keep an eye on that individual. Uh, so I, I think there's, uh, there's not a substitute for actually you know, meeting somebody in person and really getting a sense of, of who they are as individuals. Um, they, I think they do have to be um, someone, as we said last time around, with IQ and EQ. So I think they need to be able to get technically up to speed and speak intelligently and be entrusted to make decisions. Jay, awesome. or, or Bob? And, and maybe, so we can, we have a lot of questions. Maybe what we can do is if after the second person who wants to go could just jump in and then we can just make sure we go through all the questions. Um, so whoever, uh, Jay, do you want to take this next one or, or actually Mark? Sure. No, I think it's, um, I think as you build out the team, I think one of the dumbest things that happens in private equity and particularly in BD is people say, oh, let's just hire somebody and have them make thousands of calls and see how they do. And I think that is, uh, I mean, that's right out of 1980. It's just like create the dial for dollars call center approach that just isn't giving people enough credit. And, and I, uh, I think it was Simon Sinek or somebody used the acronym of MAP which is create an opportunity to give people mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And I think tying all of this stuff together, finding people, I and mean, Glenn hit it right on the head, finding people that care about people, because this is, this is all, all, the only thing that matters is the connection and the trust that you build with people. And then the systems to allow them the autonomy to say, who do I want to call next? Everybody knows who you call first. The really valuable thing out of your systems is who do you call next? And next after that, down through the stack. And then I think it all comes back with the purpose side of the people that want to, they love to hunt the deals. They love to find the people that have the deal. They love to help people get deals done. Like those elements, if you can bring all of that together in what is fundamentally an apprentice or a mentor business, uh, you know, that's how you, you build a team. And I think it also, uh, you know, to have some range on the team. Uh, different people with different skill sets and different backgrounds uh, is really important on any investment committee. It is, uh, it is essential on a business development team to not have people who just all came out of the same call center. Jordan, I'll drop off and you can choose somebody else on the next question, but this is so important. I can teach anybody finance. I can't teach them personality. I can't teach them teamwork. I can't teach them competition. I can't teach them about caring. And uh, we found, we've hired 
on BD, people right out of undergraduate school, but they're the right people. Uh, I'm a little bit biased about sports because my son played sports, but I found people from the sports community, whether it's soccer, whether it's football, whether it's lacrosse, they have a team mentality and sure they're competing against their brethren and that's for that spot on the starting line, but they're competing as a team and they understand competition. They understand hard work. And most importantly, they understand time management. We'll teach them all the rest of the finance just from the experience. You sit in our, in our Monday morning meetings, and I think it's with everybody here. That is an MBA course. You do that every week, and you go through 10, 15 deals, and you say why we like it, why we don't. You may not agree with it, but you're getting a grounding that you will never get in a graduate school. And within a year, these people understand finance. And you can always take accounting courses later, but I can't teach them people. I would, I would add one thing to that. I think everybody has said, had some good words of wisdom, but what I would say is if I were to hire somebody today, I would want them to understand that this is not an instant gratification game, that it's a long haul. <laughs> it, it, you got, you really do. There's a lot of truth to that funnel where you, you know, you look at a hundred to get interested in 10 to do one or two. And so um, even I get frustrated sometimes on how hard it is to get things through all of us as partners and, and financed and went over the seller. It is, it's a, you've got to be a grinder to survive long-term in this business. Well, Mark, that might be a, a good segue to this next question. <laughs> and this is not me, this is not from the panelists. This is an anonymous question, which is, we've seen some fairly clueless associates operating from a very rigid and process-oriented approach who just cannot grasp the value in a company where it was immediately apparent to the senior partners. So what are the best ways to avoid dealing with relatively junior associates instead of decision makers? I'll jump in and take that one first. Um, I think that's an organizational problem. That means that organization has put people on the street to represent their brand who don't know how to evaluate a deal. So, you know, that is unfortunately, if you're a senior person or you're a person at a deal source and you want to get to the real decision makers, um, you know, the, 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 the crude way to do it is, you know, look up those people. If you know that, for instance, ABC private equity firm, it, you know, this should be a lock for them, but this junior person isn't excited about it because they don't recognize it. You know, the crude way to do it is to just look on that private equity firm's website, find more senior people and copy them. Um, crude, maybe rude, but effective. Um, but the problem is not that junior person, they've been put in a situation um, in a role where they're not going to succeed. And that means that firm does not properly value the business development function. Jordan, you know, I think I would flip that question around in a way and um, say, how do you avoid spending too much time with a junior BD person that doesn't really understand that the deal isn't interesting to the senior people in the organization? So how as an investment banker do you avoid sort of having your wheels spun. How do you recognize if that's happening? I'd be curious for how you guys think about that dynamic. I will, I will join in, I'll, I'll flip it, not from an investment banking perspective, but sometimes from a lending perspective, you, you see someone ask 50 questions about a transaction opportunity and, um, you know, kind of puts you through the, the, the grind to answer all those questions only to come back 
later like, yeah, we're going to take a pass. No, thanks. And, and I, I'm assuming that's a similar sort of the investment bank or deal source might be really frustrated that someone in a private equity firm who's junior is asking so many questions when there's really a couple of three, four kind of big things industry-wise and company-wise that can probably tip it one way or another. Um, but that's, that's a pet peeve of mine when, when folks ask a zillion questions, you try to be polite and answer them when there's really not, um, you know what the answer is going to be. Gretchen, to your point, that might be an institutional signal, right? That might be a signal that this isn't the right group for me to be working with, right? I mean, that's that's um, yeah. that's the way they're running their BD. If it's so disconnected from the IC process, and right, uh, it's just 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 a thought, right? Gretchen, I'll add on to that real quickly. Uh, this kind of goes in the vein of bad BD. We had that exact same situation happen with a lender recently. Asked a million questions, um, and on the day the indication of interest was due, he left a voicemail that said, eh, we're not comfortable with it. Bad BD. Well, let's, um, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about post-COVID. What do you think a post-COVID BD environment looks like, maybe starting with travel? Do you think it's, let's talk about maybe the dynamics of local regional versus national, and or cross border, can you kind of talk about, um, you know, what the future looks like and what you think the new normal is going to be for BD teams? First of all, there's going to be a very short period of time where we're just all hosting giant receptions all over the country and just inviting all our friends, reconnecting and hugging people again. <laughs> I'll let someone else answer since I uh, did the last one. I really don't think that things are going to change after that giant party that you're describing. I, I mean, if your friendly competitors are hitting the road, you're going to have to hit the road. And I think everybody on the panel recognizes the value of, of in-person interactions with individuals. Um, we're going to continue to cover the entire United States and Canada. So I, I just don't see it uh, changing. If, if we're truly in a healthy environment, I think we'll get right back to it. I think this has made uh, in-person interactions, I think it's elevated them and made us appreciate how precious they are. And I think we will see in-person interactions, you know, I think about five years ago, it was nothing for me to get on a plane with a big deal team and go see a company with very little desk work done ahead of that. And over the last year, that's a life-threatening exercise. And it makes you say, before I go get on a plane, um, I need to do a bunch of desk work. I need to do a bunch of Zoom calls. And, uh, and I think it'll, it'll affect uh, how early in a process you go deploy that FaceTime, your most precious resource, which is you know our senior people going to try to win a deal. But I think on the flip side, you'll see a step inserted in a well-run middle market auction where there will be a bunch of Zoom calls instead of 12 management meetings. Maybe you'll do 20 Zoom calls and down select to four management meetings, um, which I think is a, is a wonderful thing. I think we all needed a reminder um, and we could talk about this forever <laughs> about uh, you know, the failings of Facebook and Instagram and social media to you know, this, this thin facsimile of real interaction. Uh, I think we've also realized how valuable real interaction is. And we're, I think we're going to elevate it to the appropriate level of preciousness 
in in these processes um, and then you know picking who your deal partner is. Yeah, he's absolutely excited right. yeah. about that. The, the quality of the future meetings are going to be multiples higher than they've ever been before. We will be doing more advanced work because. I think all of us have gotten better about doing advanced work because you have to do from home. You can't just walk down the aisle and ask somebody else to do it for you. You do it yourself. I think when we get on the road, when we go in, it's not going to be a meet and greet. There's going to be a real agenda. Uh, it's either what am I trying to let them know about us so they won't forget Riverside or what am I trying to find out about them? What are they doing that I don't know about so I don't miss out on an opportunity? And I think the follow-up is even going to be more intense. You know, we go to some of these meetings and we get a stack of cards and we put them into our deal cloud or our deal dynamo or any of the other systems and maybe forget about it. We're going to be a lot more sensitive when that goes information goes in and we're going to start triggering follow-ups so that we don't just fire and forget and say, great, I've had, I've had a meeting six months later. They forget about you in a deal and you say, well, gee, didn't we talk about that six months ago? And I said, yeah, where have you, where have you been lately? I think the follow-up is going to be much more uh, effective and I think we're going to be a lot more sensitive to wasting other people's time and wasting our own. I mean, that's, that's really about it. Wasting our own time being uh, uh, busy as opposed to being effective. Nice. So let's turn to a, another topic that um, is, I think, of particular interest, in, and that's compensation. And so this was um, a question we got several times uh, on the prior panel. But tell us how you think about compensation for um, BD professionals, um, perhaps break it down into sort of blend of salary versus bonus and how the bonus is structured and whether there's carrier or equity. Who's up? It's really important that one, it obviously is a meritocracy and that the whole organization be a meritocracy and that BD function is so critical, it's so vital and it's not commoditized. Um, the industry is pretty commoditized, cash is, but, but, but great BD, I don't think is commoditized. And so I think it's just critical that people's sense of fairness um, is, is addressed and met and relative to other functions within the organization. So if it's indeed a meritocracy, people providing a certain amount of value need to be compensated appropriately relative to the other functions in the organization. Um, we use both, both, you know, base and bonus and, um, phantom equity for everyone. Um, a lot of the, the the bonus is not tied to things that are necessarily directly deal related, but rather the behaviors and the characteristics are, are going to lead to that deal activity. Yeah, um, I'll jump in this. It's, it's a tough one because he who quotes numbers is going to lose at the end of this conversation, no matter how we talk about it. So as, as a lawyer, we'll often say it depends. On one hand, I have the dollar issues. On the other hand, I have four fingers and a thumb and they leave it at that, which means they're not gonna answer the question and neither am I, but be, I will say it really depends. Somebody coming in right out of college, um, they may have the personality skills that I'm looking for. I have to teach them the financial skills. Somebody that's been there for two years, maybe on a lending and they move over to PE, they've got some skills, but not the others. Uh, somebody who's already been at a PE firm and wants to go to a bigger one or they're at a big firm and they really want the touch and feel of a smaller PE firm like us, they're going to get compensated differently. But I will say, and, and whether it's phantom equity or it's actual carry, I mean, when I joined, and in many respects, it's still the same, but when I joined, all of our admin got carry. I mean, if you're part of the firm 
you need to get a stake in the action. It may not be significant to a, a partner when he looks at the carry of somebody else who's further down the totem pole. But if you're into the profit sharing game, that means you're valuable. And if you're getting hired as a BD person, and I know some PE firms will disagree with me, if they're hiring you and you don't get a, uh, a shot at the brass ring, how important are you down the road? There has to be some incentive for you what to want to stay two, three, four years. And carry is the gift that keeps on giving. You know, nobody wants to leave because they're giving up carry if you're not vested. Three, four, five, seven years down the road. If you don't have carry, you're not invested. You're, you're, you know, you're basically dialing for dollars and you eat what you kill and you get a bonus and you get a salary. And you're going to slice the guy next to you and say, oh, he really wasn't on that deal. I've seen that too many times. Not necessarily at our firm, but I've seen it before. Um, you create bad behavior if you're not part of the team. I'll echo what Bob said. And I think the one piece that I would add to that is um, the view of your of your limited partners, of your investors. When they see that carry is being distributed throughout the firm, um, that's a win. That's going to lead to stability. That's going to lead to people sticking around. Um, couldn't couldn't agree more with that philosophy, Bob. I'll, I'll jump in, dip a toe in, um, and throw some numbers around. Um, I, it's my perception that what Riverside does, you know, giving everyone down to an admin um, carry is a benchmark few match. Um, I think it's more common that you'll see carry in the BD function, um, VPs, principals, and above, um, and most certainly partners. Um, I think if you're a junior person coming in, you know, I would say you probably shouldn't expect to get carry. Um, so you've been there a few years and, um, and proven that you can do the job. Um, I would also point out that I know we all have access to the studies of, you know, average compensation. Um, they're highly skewed by the East Coast, highly skewed, you know, so those of us who've been in the Midwest or the South or, you know, Texas, um, you know, it'll be hundreds of thousands of dollars different if you were the, in the exact same position at a firm in New York, if you're at a, if you're at a senior level. So the geographic differences are, are um, quite, quite significant. So I'd caution you not to just gather some data and assume, you know, when you go looking for a job that that's, that's the way it's gonna be. I'd say you should probably, if you're junior, you should expect that you'll earn um, a salary, you know, with a bonus, maybe 75% of your comp will be salary, 25 bonus. Um, and as to Glenn's point, I've always been in favor of, you know, not necessarily being compensated for deals closed because as a biz dev person, there's so much out of your control. But what's in, you know, my biz devs team control is, are you reaching out to the actionable sources at the cadence we agreed upon and having this many meetings or Zooms or speaking on X number of panels to generate brand um, <clears throat> awareness and all of those activities will lead to deal flow. Um, and so I think I'm much more in favor of rewarding the execution of those activities that we all believe will get you to deal flow that closes. You know, Gretchen, Gretchen I'll, I'll take your house purchase price or Mark's house purchase price and live in those if I could have him here in New York City. You're right. Exactly. It, it, it's exactly. a huge it's difference. It's a cost of living. It's a cost yeah. of living difference. 
Right. We're going to have another we're going to have another uh, vlog where I'll be shooting this with Aaron Carroll on we're going to be going to a lot of data like specifically around this because they've been doing this for years um, and they do have a lot of those data points. But Gretchen, that's a really good point and look into the data to see where those data points are coming from. Um, it's one data point or like, it's a lot of data points, but <laughs> every study has its uh, has its margin of error. Um, so it, it, is it OK if we move on to the next question or is there anything else that you guys have on this one? Um, okay, cool. So the, the next question is, um, hold on a second, let me get this coming up. Uh, how do you best manage and develop new relationships with bankers? So let's say a VP moved over and they do industrials coverage and now you're one of their tier ones, tier twos. Um, that's just one example. But can you kind of talk through maybe the specifics around how do you manage and develop new relationships with bankers? Jay, do you want to take it? Sure. Um, you know, again, I think, I think generation one was the Rolodex. You know, you'd have a bunch of people at a company and they all had their own Rolodex and their own business cards and their proprietary relationships that they owned. And that is, uh, that's the dinosaur way of doing things. The modern way is, you know, you've got a bunch of talented people. We have hired the best and brightest in the industry and everybody you've hired in the organization has great EQ and figure out how to lever each one of those people to develop the right number of relationships for them to the benefit of the company. Um, and I think, you know, I like the way you asked it in terms of managing and developing as opposed to like, you know, again, 1960, go hire a guy who knows a lot of people. Today, it's you're hiring team players that help build, you know, it starts with a one-on-one -on -one relationship with somebody you met at a conference or you connected with on a deal, but it's a continuum of managing that relationship um, to the point where now it's not an individual one-on-one -on -one relationship, it's a firm-wide relationship. And the senior people at, at deal source A appreciate Plexus and we know what they're trying to do as they grow their business they know what we're trying to do as we grow our business and you're creating that long-term alignment up to the organization. So uh, th that's how I've always thought about it is, you know, starting with two guys trade business cards and getting to a point where the CEOs and the leaders of those two companies are interested in how the other firm is growing and succeeding. And that, to me, that's the management role and the contribution from BD is to call in those coordinates coordinates and, and create that uh, viral relationship within the two companies where you're plugged in and it's bigger than any one individual relationship. You know, uh, despite the fact that we've been around for 31 years now, I'm amazed that we continue to get um, inbound opportunities from groups, investment banking groups, small boutiques um, that I've never heard of, never interacted with, never seen anything from. And I treat every one of those the same as a potential new relationship. And even if the deal is not necessarily a good fit, um, I'll follow up. I'll tell them why we're not going to pursue it, why it's not a fit. I'll forward them a quick one-page overview of the firm so they'll know what we do. And I'll, I'll ask them if they wouldn't mind having jumping on the phone for a 15-minute call. And you would be amazed how far that goes for some of these two, three, four-person boutiques who never had any interaction with you. And the first interaction is a very thoughtful response, um, a summary overview, and a 15 minute phone call. And 
boom, you've got a new relationship. A quick aside, I think it's key in our shop that we remember how customized it also has to be. There are some phenomenally productive intermediaries where you just kind of come to an understanding that they really don't need or want to hear from you, but every so often. And there are others who enjoy and um, where there's benefit derived from much more frequent interaction. So um, we, we codify all of that in our, in our CM, CRM. So we're we're, we're giving the right type of attention to the right individual. Nice. Um, can we talk a little bit about buy-side relationships? Um, in what situations and maybe what size and shape of firms uh, have you seen a buy-side relationship work in terms of, I'm going to help them find ad, they're going to help us find add-ons, they're going to help us find platforms. Um, that, and if, there's, if it's relevant, throwing in the technology angle uh, for that. Bob, do you want to start? Yeah, when we started out, I started out because it was just me 18 years, 19 years ago. Um, I used one or two buy side because one, their fees were outrageous, at least I thought they were at the time. And quite frankly, they were. But more importantly, very time consuming. And when you're developing an entire office, um, sometimes you need a little help from investment banks that are providing you with a, a SIM with some information, uh, creating a, a, a process. We've now morphed and we used to have two, three or four buy-side brokers on retainer. Now we have a whole cadre, uh, but it's much more curated. It's kind of like we've, we've gone from uh, building a car piece by piece by one person to what Ford has done in terms of mass production. We're using certain buy-side brokers that are specifically only for technology. We're looking for a specific industry, whether it's in franchising, plumbing, air conditioning, uh, or uh, electronics. So we're starting to have more curated and uh, giving them specific assignments. And we're trying out a lot of different things uh, that we never would have done before, but also we have a much wider bandwidth. A lot of our associates and analysts within the funds, we source it, they ha we hand it off to them immediately for a little bit more deeper vetting. Typically we would do all the vetting ourselves. Uh, you can't drink from a fire hose every day and expect to survive. You have to have a division of labor. And we've slowly created that <laughs> over 19 years. Didn't happen over time. But I think the buy side brokers are, are essential to finding those little nuggets. Everybody talks about proprietary and sure we find our share and I think everybody here does, but they also are providing us with a view to a different type of market that we don't see every day. So we're starting, once we have a platform, we're starting to see different types of deals as add-ons and that helps shape our opinion as to, gosh, I never thought of that as an add-on or that specific company is exactly what we need. Sometimes you don't know what you need. You know, it's like I used to say, well, I know it when I see it, as the judge would say, you know, it when you see this add on, but you may not have been able to articulate it. And suddenly that puts us off into a yeah. whole new, whole new direction. Well, guys, in the interest of time, we got 11 minutes left. I'd like to move on to another question, which is you know, like, what advice would you have recruiting advice do you have for the juniors who might be at a, another lower middle market firm and they want to, you know, find the next opportunity, the next fit, you know, it's difficult to do it right now. Glenn, would you mind kind of giving your thoughts around this? 
Sure, we can light it on it earlier. I really do think that going to conferences with that in mind would be extraordinarily helpful so that people have the opportunity to, to touch you, to, to get to know you face to face. I think that would be key. Um, and then you know, working a very trusted, obviously, but a, a trusted network. Um, I think everybody in the panel at one point or another has tried to help a friend because we might hear about an opportunity and, and we'll refer it. But I really think somebody who's young, I, I think you'll really uh, have an opportunity to make an impression at a conference. I, I can, um, I'm an example of um, a new job that occurred uh, completely um, in COVID times involving phone calls and Zooms. So um, I would encourage you, if you're a junior person who are at, or at a smaller fund, you wanna to move to another fund, go, go on the website, find out who, ha, who does BD, the target firm, hit them on LinkedIn and go direct. And let me remind you all, we are building a business development team here at Avanti Investment Management. <laughs> nice plug, nice. Um, okay, so along that similar line with, with recruiting or just career development, um, what are the main steps for moving from an individual contributor to being a business development team leader? What are some of these key concepts that people need to think about, you know, not just this year, next year, but multiple years down the road? Um, actually, Dan, would you, would you mind starting off with that? Because I know uh, Convess has a robust BD team. Yeah. So look, Carlos and I have both dealt with this and I, I you know, I think we both are pleased with what we've um, you know, the way we've been able to shift from from being um, not lone wolves, but being very focused on getting deals done to focused on being part of a team. And I think the key is just aligning incentives. I think having having good people, absolutely making sure everyone um, is looking to win together. And um, you know, we talked earlier about how if you if you create incentives to claim credit, that's going to drive behavior, and that won't create a team approach. So you have to create. Um, shared wins. You got to celebrate those wins, and um, and just make sure everyone has has a stake in the firm's success. I mean, that idea of everyone having carry is um, awesome, you know. And I and I think that's um, I, I applaud that, Bob. And I applaud your cup as well. I love your your Notre Dame cup. So thank you. <laughs> it's, it's my actually- son's. It's my son's. <laughs> I never gave it back to him when I gave it to him for Christmas. <laughs> um. Gretchen, what, what about you? What do you think about what should maybe some key principles that people need to be thinking about from, you know, maybe their first year or second year BD associate, first year on the team? Like, how do they start to plan out the next five years? What are the well, key things they need to be thinking about? Um, I'll, I'll tell you what I did. I looked at who was doing this, who was doing the job that I wanted to be. And so I looked at Bob Landis, Glenn Oaken, Mark Jones, and Jay Jester, who were all, you know, all, our goatees, huh? all before me. And I did what they did. I mean, it's for, for that's ab- absolutely hundred percent true. Um, when I first got into BD at my first private equity firm, um, uh, one of my colleagues suggested I, you know, benchmark the best. And uh, that's what I did. So, um, and as I said on the last webinar, you've all been incredibly generous. And um, although we're all roughly the same age, you, you guys were doing it longer and you were always generous and helpful with your strategies and your time and your advice. And I thank you for that. 
So if I'm a junior person, I'm going to do the same thing. And I'm going to reach out to directly or get a warm introduction and try to develop some level of relationship with that person. Um, so that's kind of a regular tactic. But I think what you need to be doing is you need to be bringing new ideas. So if you're a junior person and you're reporting to a more senior person, that person is swamped, right? Absolutely swamped, drinking from a fire hose. You've heard that several times here. And that's great, right? Because lots of deals are coming in to look at. But I think you need to figure out ideas how you can see what else is going on in the market. So maybe when you go to a conference or you're on a, a, a COVID conference Zoom, um, try to pick up some ideas or tips or um, practices that somebody on a panel described that your firm is not doing. And you can bring that as an idea to your boss and say, hey, you know, so-and-so is doing this. We should, we should look into doing this. And, you know, it could be a number of things. It could be um, trying to create your own private, you know, banker, private equity afternoons, you know, four hours of six private equity firms and six investment banks getting together and just doing the speed dating that we used to do in person. Or maybe it's, um, you know, hosting some happy hour where you're sending a number of bankers something to imbibe in during happy hour and you know maybe your firm hasn't been doing that because they didn't want to spend that money you can say oh these other firms are doing it and deepening relationships let's do that so i think if you can bring some new ideas based upon best practices you're in you're seeing in the in that environment bring them to your boss and suggest i think that'd be very helpful sure so what's the, for making yeah. it more valuable one thing I would add, I think it's also the responsibility of the firm to make sure somebody like that has exposure to all facets of the business. Because for us, BD is um, it's LP interaction, it's management meetings with potential acquisitions. So it's really incumbent on the, firm, on the firm to expose these people to aspects of that so that one day they can step into that role and they can step into LP relationships. Um, they can step into having a role at a management meeting. Um, so I think that's that's the responsibility of the, of the firm. And Jordan, one thing I'd add on that in terms of the long-term planning for a young person trying to do this job, um, everybody on this call um, has you know decided they wanted to be the best at this. We've made careers out of it. We've done it. And it, it astounds me the number of young people that I meet that want to say, hey, I want to do this so that I can get inside the private equity firm and do something else. And that's about the most insulting thing you could say to any one of them. Um, and, the, and those are really short conversations uh, when they happen. And that's great. There's a thousand other ways, go work at the investment bank or the consulting firm or you know whatever, go, go that path. The people I wanna to talk to are the people that say, I wanna be the best at this. And here's how I thought about it. And here are the books I've read. And what are the books you've read? And and here's how I organize myself. And this is, and understand this is why it's, it matters and can convey that. The people that come in, like, I've had guys like pitch a stock idea to me. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like, that's great. I'm glad you have that skill. <laughs> but you think you have that skill. But this is, a, um, this is a worthy, awesome profession. And I think, and as we've talked about on this and the previous one, one of the few remaining ways to distinguish yourself as a private equity firm is to get this part of the equation right. Um, 
And, and I think, you know, to a young person who, who thinks they are worthy of trying to do this, to convey that this is what they really want to do, not, hey, this is the back door, um, uh, you know, because I uh, couldn't find another way in the front door. Okay. Well, guys, Sorry. you could be you could be more spot on. I mean, there are so many different jobs within a PE firm, and they're not necessarily transferable. And some of the best financial analysts and investors that we have, our investment professionals, they're not really good about being a salesperson and convincing people we're the best firm for them to partner with. But they understand credit and they can get a deal done. You need the the personality of the firm and you need the smarts of the firm, but you need the salesmanship of the firm to maintain those relationships. Well, guys, let's do a flash round in the next five to 10 minutes. If you, if you need to drop off, no worries. So let's do a flash round. <clears throat> a certain panelist emailed me 15 questions on a flash round. So I think they might have answers planned for this. Um, so Jay, let's start with you. Uh, best book for business development. Moneyball by Michael Lewis. Bob. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> Pat, let me think about that. That's Gretchen. A... Setting the table. It's based upon the hospitality industry's uh, approach to customer service. Glenn. I'm, I'm back. Getting to yes. The book, Getting to Yes. Glenn. I'm going I'm to go completely AWOL and say endurance because it has nothing to do with business, but it has everything to do with thinking for oneself, thinking independently, uh, persevering, and understanding the importance of, of human beings and team. Mark. If you haven't read it, Boys in the Boat is an incredible book. And I don't know what it has to do with business development, but those guys were a lot tougher Endurance. than I am. <laughs> Endurance. <laughs> it's about what, the 1938 or 1936 Olympics? Um, I forget what year it was. Um, okay, next. Yeah, wait, Best Jordan. Can, Yo. you, can you literally email those recommendations or LinkedIn them to all of us or put them on your LinkedIn? I, I will leverage our I, tech stack to get you the I like answers. That. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next, best business training for BD. Business training. On the, on the job sales trial, and marketing position. Trial by fire. Follow, follow, follow any of these people on this call on do a day of investment banking calls. Okay, best non-business training that set you up for success. For example, being a waiter or whatever you did. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, Bartender. Uh, hey, you thought about these so pretty crew, deeply. Crew coxswain. Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, and I'll help, I'll help Jones out with his Pardon book me. recommendation, but I think uh, especially in the new configuration where the coxswain's in the front of the boat and has to know what's going on behind him, I think that would be uh, maybe the best training for somebody uh, who wanted to get into a BD role because a lot of times you're out in front of the firm and you have no idea what's happening behind you and uh, and you got to steer. I think the screen hash example was perfect for so many reasons as I think about it. Multitasking like crazy, juggling cats, but also dealing with incredible broad universe of individuals. Some of them wonderful, spectacular, some of them wildly disappointing and frustrating. You have to treat them all like. Okay. <laughs> right, I'd, I'd, I'd say for me, it was the military. You never know what's incoming next, good or bad. And I think if you wanted to get training, going for something like Advent or Summit, where they used to just dial for dollars, I mean, it was a, they were just, I, I don't think I could ever have done that, but just dialing for dollars, cold calling, cold calling, cold mm -hmm. calling. Wow. 
my hats off to those guys. So let's talk about resumes and hundreds of resumes that you have looked at. In the resume, what should people emphasize and de-emphasize to make that case for joining your BD team? Mark? Hmm, good question. Um, I'll tell you what, I think it's a red flag when I see resumes where people have been there for a year, 18 months, and they jump jobs continuously. To me, they're always looking for the, uh, the grass being green. I don't know how you change that. Um, obviously, you can't leave it off. But I think people should. I think people should try and develop tenure. Now, you're, of course, you're talking to somebody who's had two jobs in his life. So, uh, but I think that's really critical today. And, and if you're making it, if you're making an upward move, I, I get it. But it, firms are making an investment in you, and if you're going to leave after a year or two, eh, it's not. It's not. It's not a good sign. Uh, Dan, what about you? I think that's I think that's key. Just to showing some um, level of commitment and success within an organization. I think that's that's really important. I think um, I want to go back to the last question. I think um, in terms of non-job related, I think sports of any kind is really great for you. And I don't care. You know, this job takes a lot of energy. <laughs> it takes a lot of you. You take a beating, honestly. I mean, we talked about the fact that it's just you got to be resilient because you got you get ninety nine no's. Or, or killing 99 deals for one deal, as Mark said. And so it just takes patience, resilience, um, confidence, energy. And so I think anything that requires you to focus and, and, and spend your energy is, is uh, gonna help you prepare for this role. And speaking of resilience, yesterday, Dan and I interviewed the first person with Down syndrome to run an Ironman. His name is Chris Nickich. And oh, that awesome. vlog is coming out. Uh, that will be coming out at the end of the month. Uh, it is an inspiration to us all. And that is insanity that he went that distance. Um, really is like a testimony of the human potential. So let, let's go to the next question, which is uh, most embarrassing or favorite BD moment or story Jay, since you wrote the question, we'll start with you. <laughs> um, a long time ago, early in the days of my previous firm, we made a massive investment um, in a, uh, uh, a motorcycle company that was not going well. And um, I was, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we had a chance, the, the, the product was actually featured in one of the Terminator movies. And, uh, and we were going to have that, product at the ACG LA event at our table at a capital connection. And uh, the guy was, the, the, the Hollywood guy was going to bring the Terminator bike that Schwarzenegger had ridden in the movie. And, um, and I show up and I got to walk down this thousand yard hallway, walking past people that, that had seen it before I got there that were laughing at me. And I show up and the bike is um, uh, pink and purple with this crazy handlebar and i get there like what the hell happened and the bike had the same bike had since been used in the cat in the hat movie and it was just the most <laughs> classic backfire embarrassing moment and everybody i knew all these clowns wanted to get a picture of me on this ridiculous uh uh giant purple motorcycle that was uh it was a serious walk of shame getting to that point, trying to figure out <laughs> this cool thing that I thought I was walking up to. Bob, what about you? This is a cautionary tale of panic in the third degree. Um, somewhere in my career over the past 20 years, and, and this is after the 
fact that you could figure out how to recall an email, which I didn't know at the time, but I learned in about 30 seconds. <laughs> I was communicating with somebody about my boss. And ever since then, I've always reread my emails and never put anything that I'm afraid would show up in the Wall Street Journal. And it was probably one of the most impolitic comments I had made. Fortunately, it was all rated G. And I hit the send. And as soon as I hit the send, not only had I sent it to my colleague, but I'd sent it to my boss. And in 45 seconds of panic, I figured out how to recall emails. So those of you who have never done that before, learn how to do it now before it's too late. And he had already opened it, so I knew that wouldn't be recalled. But I got the one that I wanted to get back before it got delivered. So <laughs> that is panic in the third degree. I'm, who knows? <laughs> who knows how my careers would have been different? Mine is a uh, two instances over probably separated by 10 years of reply all that should have been reply to one person on the chain, <laughs> which included disparaging information. My, my, my disparaging opinion on individuals who received the email and responded like immediately. So recall all or recall was not in it. So may have called the huge apologies, totally embarrassing. I'm very careful now, especially on my cell phone. When well, I that makes me think of a question like, do you have a practice now where if it's something that has th that type of gravity to it, that you wait till the next day I just, to send well, something? I just do what, what Bob is like. I need to make, I, I need to put nothing in here that will be, you know, embarrassing to me. And so I just was good training. I had, I had to hit, I had to be punched twice with that. Bob but we're, but we're all tempted. I mean, we're all tempted. Sometimes we get a little snarky in our email. When I do that, I put it aside, maybe go down and get a cup of coffee and I come back. Like, I mean, who was it? Um, oh, famous author, Tom Sawyer, right? I mean, Mark, Mark Twain said, I always put my books, anything, any letter I sign, I put aside for a day. My emails, I put aside for two to three minutes. If I, and then I come back and I rewrite it. I just get a different fresh breath of fresh air because you know, snarkiness <laughs> like gets you nowhere. Mark? I can't top these. I can't right. top these. <laughs> Glenn? I, I've got uh, embarrassing and strange, two different quickies. I had a, a brilliant new colleague truly brilliant, but he had not figured out how to successfully hang up a phone on a conference call with <laughs> a target company, which was like pushing a rope. And um, one of the, the, the two owners, uh, husband, wife team, the company employees called her the dragon lady to give you some idea. And let's just say we thought that the phone was hung up and there was a discussion about the dragon lady. Um, strangest um, a, a new young colleague got out of a cab and went to the conference hotel bar with the cab attendees or cab occupants. An individual, I think he was on uh, the intermediary side, was upset that he didn't pick up the cab tab and decided to blindside Cole Cockham and punched him. Never to be seen again in the industry. The, the, the perpetrator ran away Brave soul, and it was no one that I know has ever seen this individual in the industry. <laughs> there we go. All right, let's take us home with the last question, which is in your experience and now being at the top of the field of business development, what is the best BD habit that you do on a regular basis? For example, make 
X number of calls every single day, religiously come hell or high water. What are the best habits you have that you think has led you to where you're at? And Dan, would like to start with you. Yeah, it's just that, Jordan. It's it's make the calls. You know, we, we talked about CRMs earlier. We are I'm a religious user of Salesforce, and I wasn't five years ago. That's a huge change. And what it does is it just makes me make the calls. So, um, you know, I, I just absolutely love looking at the data now, seeing seeing what my activity was, seeing what my deal flow was. And so I think just just work, man. It's really just get out there and, and hustle. Awesome. Gretchen? On you. Ah, mine is not a metric. Um, mine is uh, meditation practice. It's really been a superpower for me. It's very, um, it, allows, it allows for focus that I didn't have before. I think those of us who are, you know, extroverted BD personality types, we have a, I had a tendency to kind of be responsive to too many things um, simultaneously. And uh, for me, the ability to be more focused that is accomplished through meditation is, is my best, is my best habit. That's amazing. You know, in Tim Ferriss's book, Tools for Titans, I think it is, or Habits of a Champion, whatever it is, he, um, he talks about how the common thread amongst all high performers is some type of meditative practice as one of the common threads. Thank you. For, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Mark, what about you? I'll give three quick tips. Um, one is meeting prep. It, you, there's no substitute for it. Don't show up stupid. Um, two, when you're, when you're on the road, um, maybe tagging along to what Gretchen said, I always make time scheduled exercise into my day. And I usually don't do breakfast because usually it's early in the morning. And three, um, don't make, uh, don't make the majority of your efforts focused on conferences. Um, go to XYZ City when there's absolutely nothing going on and you'll get 90% of the meetings you want. Awesome. Jay? Um, about 20 years ago, uh, one of the things I noticed is I was getting all these generic uh, holiday cards, you know, with stamp signatures or, you know, even just blank inside. And um, there was one guy that sent me a picture of his family. Um, and I just, I thought it was a nice touch and I copied that habit. And um, it has been one thing that I've, it's been a centering thing. I'd, I'd say it's, it's, a, it's a combination of exercise because it's a lot of signing and meditating because you're sitting there and you're thinking about not just the firms, but the individual people, uh, you know, that made that year possible and made the career possible. And, uh, you know, just hand signing those and, and going through and trying to remember names of families and stuff, you know, you don't have time to go look at the CRM. Uh, but, but doing that, uh, you know, every holiday season is, uh, is, is a habit. And it's a tough one this year because I don't think people are in their offices getting mail, but, uh, that's been a, but you can do something different, which is get your phone, look at your top 100 list on LinkedIn, and then do a video, a 30 second video. Be like, Dan, like, I just want to let you know for four years, we've known each other. And like, you have made an incredible difference in my life for these reasons. Thank you. And taking the time and going through that top 25, top 50 list of those people who've truly made a difference. It doesn't matter who's put money in your pocket. It doesn't matter who's like made an influence on making you a better person. And that's the stuff that doesn't scale, but over time builds long-term relationships. So in this COVID environment, get on LinkedIn, DM people, 
send a personal message, take the time to be thoughtful. Um, Bob? One word, respond. If somebody's going to take the time to send me an email or call me, I will respond. And more importantly, if after our investment committee, we pass on a deal, I will try within 24 hours to call them with a cogent reason why we passed. And if I call them and they're not there, I will call the second person. And then if I can't get them, I leave voice messages and then I send them both an email. Nothing worse for an investment banker to get a no, I get it to get a nothing answer. And by doing that, people now realize if I don't respond within two or three days, then they know I've missed it. And I also have a file called Park. And I just put anything that I can't follow up in, in that. And it may be a week later that I, shoot, I forgot to respond to these people. At least they know, and I just apologize. But if you drop the ball once or twice, you're forgiven. If you do it all the time, they don't, <laughs> your deal flow dries up. That's awesome. And Glenn, to take us home. Nothing new, I guess, but I just really love getting to know the, the personal side of a contact um, and let people talk about the things about which they're impassioned. It makes a big difference in their day, I think, or at least that call and, and mine as well. It's self-preservation. I try to read very broadly and have a library of books that I will share with somebody if it's relevant. I think I asked you that question today, if you'd read a particular tome. Um, and people think about you for a few hours if they if they have a good book that you provided. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for doing this. The recording, the podcast, and the article will be available very shortly. Check out investorsandoperators.com for part one, which the video and the podcast is available. Um, next month, we have a couple of interesting events, including It's Time, Women in Private Equity, as well as uh, advice for people just starting their BD career. That's on January 12th. And so we'll send out a whole schedule of that. But guys, thank you so much for doing this. I know that you know, your knowledge is really having an impact on people at you know, whatever stage in their career that they're at. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday, guys. Thank you. Good, Good holiday. Day. 